welcome to our um, an event here in the hosted uh, co-sponsored co by UCL's Institute, Institute of Advanced Studies and Mishkan Dorea. Uh, this year, we're at the Institute of Advanced Studies. We're uh, holding a lot of events, thinking about lies and lying from different dis disciplinary perspectives, and it's only fitting that we drew on some of the expertise of Mishkan Dorea. Uh, UCL laws and laws faculties from around the London area uh, to talk about lies and lying in a legal context and specific, specifically around the uh, question of defamation. Um, I am here to learn a lot as I uh, might, I'm not a lawyer at all, but I'll pass it over to uh, our moderator, Harriet Williams, an associate at Mishkan Dorea. Um, will be sort of managing the conversation to come, and he's also going to introduce us to our panelists. Perfect, great. Um, welcome. We are going to, each of the panelists is going to give approximately a 10 minute, but it can be longer or yep. shorter, uh, talk on a topic of their choice, which I'll just set out in relation to this, uh, this bigger question. And then um, I will lead a discussion amongst us and then open it to the floor. So um, we have here uh, Dr. Alex Mills, who's a reader in public and private international law at the Faculty of Law here. And we'll talk about cross-border defamation and social media. Um, we have Professor Rachel Muller. Great, <laughs> sorry. Who's a professor of tort law and civil justice at the Department of Law at Queen Mary's. And she will talk on whether the Defamation Act 2013 was actually needed at all. Um, Dr. Judith Townend is a lecturer in media and information law in the School of Law, Politics and Sociology at uh, University of Sussex. And we'll, we'll speak on um, monitoring the temperature. Uh, well, her title is Monitoring the Temperature, the Chill of Defamation in the UK. And then we have uh, Robert Sharp, who's head of campaigns at English Pen and also uh, writes his own blog, robertsharp.co.uk. So uh, without further ado, we will start. Thank you, Harry. Um, and uh, thank you very much to UCL Institute of Advanced Studies for the invitation to speak tonight. I have been tasked with this uh, unenviable task, perhaps, of um, explaining why the 2013 Defamation Act was enacted. The reason I had been asked to do that is because I was on the 2010 Ministry of Justice and Civil Justice Council working group where we saw an earlier version of the defamation, uh, uh, defamation bill, as it was in those days. So it was really with that little bit of historical perspective in mind that I've been asked to speak to you tonight. So the background to the defamation bill was indeed, as I mentioned, this very early version of the defamation bill, 2010. But that was followed fairly quickly by the 2011 consultation, the reference for which I've noted on your sheet. Now, the Right Honourable Kenneth Clark, when he gave the ministerial forward to that consultation, was quite clear that the law, the government's view was that the law should change. And I've extracted what I thought were the key aspects of his ministerial forward, the concern about defamation having had a chilling effect on the freedom of speech. And we are particularly concerned to ensure the threat of libel is not used to frustrate academic debate and to impede responsible investigative journalism and the valuable work undertaken by NGOs. And we also want to reduce the potential for trivial claims. 
So clearly the government did have a, 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 a principle in mind that the law could be changed and it could be clarified. But it seems to me that there are only three things that a statute should do, particularly in the area of tort law. One is to reverse the law if it is perceived that the existing law is wrong. The second is to clarify the law where there are uncertainties, that is, a divergent precedent where um, uh, litigants do not know what the law would be should they litigate this point. And thirdly, to create something which wasn't in existence before under the common law or under a previous statute. Now, each of those three functions is very important for the enactment of statute. But when statutes are enacted and provisions within statutes are enacted so as to supplement the law or to abolish a body of law but then sort of bring it back in, 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 in the section, that's when confusion can and complexity can start arising. And I think that the, the Defamation Act of 2013, as I've put there on the table, I think it exhibits both of, of these requirements, of these um, characteristics, something that was required and something that probably wasn't. So what I've sought to do is just set out a few examples on each side of this table. And, and as I, I, I reiterate, you know, statutes which change, statutes, statutes which reverse, statutes which clarify and statutes which create, all of those have very important functions and that's you know, exactly why the parliamentary chamber is there. But some of this, I think, is really not in that category at all. But let's start with the ones which I think were very much part of the ethos of statutory reform. Of course, the slander of women is, is an example where the, 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 the world has changed. Um, in um, Karen Kennedy of 1942, um, when, when Lady um, Kennedy uh, suggested that Miss um, Kerr was a lesbian, that was a, a, um, a slander which, which in those days was considered by the court to not only cause a claimant to be, to be shunned, but any imputation of uh, um, lack of chastity uh, was something which could affect the um, woman's um, uh, marriage prospects. And there is a judicial comment to that effect. Um, so in that respect, the purpose, the, the, the reason why the Slander of Women Act of 1891 was, um, was enacted was to ensure that some slander could be actually actionable per se, that is, without proof of damage being required. And this was a category where it was not necessary for the lady concerned to prove a financial loss arising from that slanderous imputation. That was deemed, that was assumed because of that statute. So, with respect to um, what this Defamation Act does, um, Section 14, Sub 1, it, it, it casts this area back into the general rule that slander is one of those torts that requires proof of actual damage and indeed financial damage flowing from the defamatory imputation. Similarly, with contagious and infectious diseases, in the older days, uh, the, the imputation that someone had leprosy or someone had a, a form of venereal disease, that all of that was considered to be so, so um, causing the claimant to be shunned that it was actionable per se. But again, now that, that category under 14 sub 2 of the Defamation Act 2013 will require the party to prove actual damage, financial damage. So in that respect, some of the changes, the ones that I've just mentioned, are examples where the law's done a U-turn, and that's to bring the law into the modern world. With respect to the third bullet point, this is an interesting one for practical purposes. The multiple publication rule meant that on each occasion that a defamatory imputation was published, the statute of limitations started running again because it was a different publication. 
Now, of course, that meant that if the hardback went to the softback edition or if I, I had something which was in writing went, um, in a book went on to the internet or if there was a publication of a taught in more than one jurisdiction, these were a variety of examples where there were multiple publications. So it was decided under the 2013 Act per Section 8 that this would be wiped away by what's called this single publication rule and provided the imputation is substantially the same on each occasion that it's published, then the time in which it's published first is when the statute of limitations starts. Now, that may seem quite a practical point, but it's a terribly important point for a defendant. It's more generous, of course, to a defendant. The claimant has only a much shorter time in which to bring the action. Multiple publications then don't, don't um, re-invoke the limitation period. And I think perhaps going to defences, I think one of the um, defences which was helped by the Defamation Act was the Reynolds defence, known as the journalist's defence. Um, this this um, defence, of course, arose out of the, um, the, the case of, of Bertie Reynolds uh, against the, the Times, and particularly the British mainland version of the Times, which reported his resignation as Prime Minister in 1994. With respect to this defence, it, it is, it, although known as the journalist's defence, and it is meant to, to, to protect those who publish something in the public interest and where they genuinely believe it is in the public interest, it has always been capable of applying wider than journalists. For example, the case of Gregor Nogara says that it can apply to a book author. So it's always been judicially interpreted wider than that. But there was one key aspect of the Reynolds defence which wasn't clear, and that was whether what was published had to be a statement of fact or whether it could encompass a, an opinion. The um, Court of Appeal left that open and seeing, and it wasn't clear at common law. So that's what this section, section four, has done. It clarifies that the defence may apply to both statements of fact and opinion. So that's an example of where there was a lack of clarity, and statute parliament has cleared it up. So in relation to those examples, I think that you know those, those were all very useful, and they are examples of the three categories that I explained earlier, where I think statutory reform is uh, got much, much um, positive things to be said for it. But going to the no category, well, I do think the Defamation Act does tend to do um, some things which were, were really probably unnecessary, and I'd be interested to see what the um, practicing colleagues on the panel think about this. Um, I think it also, before um, looking at these ones um, in, in some uh, short detail, I think it also bears noting that we have a specialist defamation bar here in, in, in England and, and Wales, and we also have an extremely good judiciary in the defamation area. And uh, I, it's a tort that has had to grapple with huge change. You know, when you look at the first element of defamation, that there must be a defamatory imputation, that is, there must be an imputation that lowers the reputation of the claimant in the eyes of right-thinking members of society. Now, what right-thinking members of society think has changed hugely over the time. As I mentioned previously, with respect to Karen Kennedy, attitudes towards homosexuality have changed hugely over time. And, of course, the developments in technology mean that the tort of defamation has to reform. And, indeed, that's what judges have been doing. It must, must be emphasised that, the, that the, as I say, an excellent judiciary, a very specialist bar, and this is what has been happening. But, in, nevertheless, these changes happened in respect of the Act. Now, the requirement of serious harm in Section 1 sub 1, I really, that was in the original bill, that one that we looked at on the working group. I didn't understand then, and I still don't understand now, all these years later, what it's doing there. I think that the, um, the requirement that the imputation cause a, a, a real and substantial tort 
did the job. I think that it, it provided a certain threshold over which the claimant had to prove that there was damage. For example, in Jamil, there were, there were only five readers of this hyperlink, not sufficient publishees in order for it to be a real and substantial tort. So the number of publishees who read the defamatory imputation matters. But this requirement of serious harm was added in Section 1, Sub 1. And I just draw your attention to the Eccleston case, a well-known case, 2009, pre the Act, where um, Patrick Eccleston sued for um, a defamation. And it, it was a, a diary, a, 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 a sort of a, a, you know, one of these sort of social diaries that appears, appears in papers. And this one was in the Daily Telegraph. And so the author of this diary was just talking about the launch of Patrick Eccleston's new fashion line in which she was using leather products and leather goods. And, uh, and the, the diary made the point that Stella McCartney does not use animal products in her clothing. She doesn't use leather. So um, the quote, was, uh, which was attributed to Miss Eccleston, which she always denied making, but the quote attributed to Miss Eccleston was that, um, I'm not a, a veggie and I don't have much time for people like the McCartneys who, uh, who, who, who are. And, and she also mentioned Annie Lennox. So um, when that was published, Ms. Eccleston um, sued for defamation, considering, uh, alleging that the right-thinking members of society would think less of her because she was dismissive of those who held a contrary view, that those who supported vegetarianism. And the court knocked it out, said that, it, it, that people in this democratic society, in this day and age, would not think less of someone for expressing a view, however robustly, which disagreed with their own. And there was no sense that the younger members of society could be perceived to be dismissive or disrespectful to someone like Sir Paul McCartney for the views that he might hold. So Eccleston is a prime example of how this real and substantial tort element had to be met. And it wasn't. So why we needed section one, sub one, I don't know. Perhaps some of my colleagues will be able to, to explain that to me. I will skip section nine because I believe that Alex is going to talk to you far more, far more knowledgeably than I could on that. But uh, again, I, I'd be interested to see why section nine was um, required, particularly given the cases like King and Lewis, which required a nexus between the, de the defamation and this jurisdiction. With respect to the defense of honest opinion, um, now, this was abolished. The defense, the defense of fair comment was abolished. It was a common law defense, hugely important defense, and it was replaced by Section 3, and this, the defense of honest opinion. And this is a precise example of where the body of law accompanying fair comment has sort of been dragged on. Um, it's still as relevant under the Defamation Act 2013. But I, I do wonder why Section 3 was necessary. Particularly, the, 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 the explanatory memorandum makes clear that the requirement that the comment, the opinion, be in the public interest was to be dropped. It was no longer to be required under the Act, Section 3, and it is, it doesn't appear there. But the, the interpretation of an opinion which had to be in the public interest was so widely interpreted under this defence in comparison with the Reynolds defence where it can be more narrowly construed. But something which is in the public interest really meant something that would be of interest to the public under the fair, the, the fair comment defence. And indeed, if a book or a play or a film is put out there in the public, or um, those who are in the public eye, these, these are things which are in, uh, in the public interest for the purposes of this defence. So the fact that that requirement was dropped, I'm not sure made any difference at all because the public interest was so widely interpreted under Section 3. For example, Mr D's case is, a, is a, a, again, a very well-known case, but it was a very important case, this one, because it raised a, a few points of really important legal principle defamation. But, um, but Robert D was a 
professional tennis player and um, 23 years old and he, he, he was confronted with an article in the Daily Telegraph which said, world's worst tennis pro wins at last. And the, your story talked about how Mr. D had suffered 54 consecutive losses on the tennis circuit, but he had won the 55th attempt. And Mr. Mr. D and his father um, took great offence at it, said that it was um, um, reduced his reputation in the eyes of right-thinking members of society, and particularly could be damaging to a future tennis coaching career. So with respect to this case, it turned on both whether there was truth, the defence of truth, or, and whether there was the defence of fair comment. But again, there was no doubt that the defence of fair comment could have applied because this was something which was in the public, a professional players are in the public eye, and this is something that could attract, could attract the defence. In the end, the defence of truth or justification was successful there. With respect to the, last, uh, the second last bullet point, section six, peer-reviewed statements in academic journals, now, this, you might say, is new, and, and of course, as I said at my opening, statutes which do create something new is, of course, a, a valid purpose of statutory reform. But um, no doubt some of my colleagues will talk about the Singh case, and I'll, I'll leave that for, for them, um, bearing in mind I don't want to take too much time, but I... I, I think that Section 6 um, does, it doesn't, it certainly doesn't, I don't think, cope with the facts which arose in Singh, given that the article in Singh was published in The Guardian and not in an academic journal. <laughs> but, um, but furthermore, in 2010, the Court of Appeal did say that the, um, that, that the defendant here, Dr. Singh, would have the availability of the defence of fair comment. So when the Court of Appeal overturned the trial judge and said that what Dr. Singh said about the, the, the practice the um, chiropractic practices and treatments, what he said about that was, was, was comment, not fact, then one wonders why section, um, section 6 was, was, was needed. But no doubt some of my colleagues will address that in more detail. And then finally, section 5, I, I, I do wonder whether operators of websites already had sufficient protection under the common law and also under other statutory enactments which existed at the time. But I'll just end on something which I think is, is unfortunate, and that is that this distinction between a libel and slander still remains something which is unclear. And I say that because I come from a jurisdiction where um, we, um, the defamation was codified um, back when I, I studied at law school in Australia, and there was no such thing as libel and slander. It was defamation. These things had been combined, and indeed there was no need to prove special damage, that is, actual damage accruing from the defamatory imputation. It was presumed whether it was libel or it was slander. Now, that distinction between libel and slander continues to this day in England. And I just think it's a bit unfortunate that the Act didn't take the opportunity to clarify the, the, the definitions and the difference. And you know, back in the old days, of course, in Monson and Toussaint's very well-known case, 1894, Lord Justice Lopez said that uh, chalk on a board was libel because it was permanent. Libel is the permanent form and slander is the temporary or transient form. But another case had said something slightly different, that libel was addressed to the eye, slander addressed to the ear. Now, they don't necessarily yield the same result. So with respect to chalk on a board, it's addressed to the eye, but it's transient. It's addressed to the eye, though, and Lord Justice Lopez thought that it was libel. So in the, um, the Folks Committee then in 1975, it was said the sky writing in the, in, um, by a plane which dissipates with the wind and the atmosphere, that would be libel too, because it's addressed to the eye, but it's very transient. Now, all of those are some examples, and of course, sign language, what is it? It's addressed to the eye, libel, but it's not recorded, therefore is it slander? Which is mm -hmm. it? 
But we come to the more modern world where we have voicemails. And I just cite to you these two cases, Reach Local and Cooper. And Reach Local, um, His Honour Judge Richard um, Parks, said that a voicemail was slander because it's addressed to the ear. Whereas in the other case of Cooper and Turrell, um, Justice Tukenhut said that it was a libel because it's in a permanent form. And I think it's unfortunate that we are still having these debates about what is libel and what is slander when we, when we had a Defamation Act just a number of a few years ago where it could have been clarified what the definition of each of those was or perhaps even abolish the distinction between them altogether. So with that, I shall conclude and pass on to my colleague. Um, thank you very much. I think we'll just um, move straight along. Thank you very much for the invitation this evening. Um, so I'm going to take a slightly different tack and sort of think a bit more about the empirical evidence for how we think about the effect of the Defamation Act and, and generally how defamation operates in practice rather than the, the more doctrinal approach taken by our, our first speaker. And I'll explain why I take that perspective is because I'm not really a proper lawyer. Um, I started out in anthropology, then worked in journalism, ended up in sort of socio-legal studies uh, because of a sort of growing obsession in, with media law. Um, so what I'm interested in is the way that decisions actually affect the way that people operate in practice. So that's members of the public and journalists and bloggers. How does the substantive law, how does the procedural law actually affect the, the decisions that they make and the publication decisions that they make? Um, so Rachel mentioned the chilling effect being this notion at the heart of the push for defamation reform, and I'm sure some of our other panelists will pick up on that as well. Um, so I sort of started some research way back in 2010, um, sort of the, the time at which the, the libel reform campaign was gathering steam, to try and put together some evidence to try and understand the way that this chilling effect operated in practice. Now, I'm not going to go into chilling effect definitions because that's probably for another occasion. I, I suppose from my perspective, um, a useful definition seems to me that the chilling effect arises when people are deterred from publishing legitimate inf information in the public interest. Um, so I started this PhD project where I thought, OK, well, I'll try and look at how defamation is affecting these different actors and establish whether or not there's a chilling effect. Yeah, that'll be easy. Um, I was quite wrong and it was very difficult. And the main problem was a lack of hard evidence. So obviously the most reliable data that we've got is the case law that we just heard um, examples of. And the libel reform campaign reports I don't think, you, you weren't an author, but you were involved in it, I think, Rob. Uh, yeah. Which, which report? The, sorry, the very first one, the yeah, 2009 yeah, yeah, Free yeah. Speech is Not For Sale. Yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah. I, I wrote some of it, and then yeah. someone else's name was yeah. got... <laughs> 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 I, I wrote the, the tedious bits, and then my, my more accomplished colleagues, um, and, you know, the rhetorical flair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's still available online. It it's definitely is, worth yes. going back to yes. just to understand the provenance yeah. of, of the campaign. Yeah. Um, and obviously that relied on case law and drew on case examples to try and understand what the impact of defamation was. Um, and I should offer a disclosure, just a you know, conflict of interest thing, is that at the time I was doing some work for Index on Censorship, but not directly involved in the, in the campaign. So, but the problem, and then, and then it talked about some sort of anecdotal stuff as well in terms of what people were reporting about the, the impacts of um, defamation law on, on, on their work. But the problem is that the case law is really only the tip of the iceberg. Um, so only a fraction of what we might call defamation interactions actually end up in court. So 
end up lodged as a formal claim in court. And then of those formal claims in court, only a fraction of those actually end up with a court hearing. And then of those court hearings, only like a really small fraction end up actually going all the way to full trial. So even if we look at the things that happen in court, like state, um, statements in open court, strikeouts, preliminary hearings and rulings and final judgments, that's really only a partial story of, about ha of how defamation works in practice. So I was kind of interested in the under the water stuff um, to keep with the iceberg analogy. Um, how are the effects of defamation felt um, in, in reality? And you might think about emails and correspondence that particular bloggers or journalists, were, or, or if they're lucky enough to have a lawyer, their lawyers were receiving, or possibly even just the anticipation of receiving that correspondence and the impact that that might have on the decisions that you make about whether or not to publish something. Um, and uh, you know, a general sort of fear of being sued. So in trying to capture this, uh, the, these effects, I thought, well, I'll look at two forms of data. I'll look at the official stuff, the court records, and then I'll look at the informal stuff in terms of what people were reporting about what, how it actually impacted them on a day-to-day -day basis. So I started with the, the formal records and thinking that this would be the straightforward bit, and again, I was wrong. Um, <laughs> So I don't know how many of you have tried to ever access records in defamation cases um, as a member of the public or as a journalist. Um, it's not, they don't really make it that easy for you and you would be forgiven for thinking that you're not in the 21st century when you're doing that. It's very paper-based. Um, so the system, and it's still the same as it was um, when I did this original research back in sort of 2010 to 13. Um, so if you want to access a claim form or a statement of case of a particular case and you're entitled to that under the civil procedure rules um, you need to actually go to the Royal Courts of Justice in person I mean if you're based at UCL that's quite easy but obviously if you're not based in London then that's a little more uh, difficult and you need to have the case number um, so if you know one of the lawyers and the, one they, that are involved in the proceedings they might give you the case number um, you can get it off a paid-for subscription service called Lawtel, but obviously a lot of members of the public don't have access to that database. Um, but if you don't have that, then your only option is to go to the court. So you go to the court and you want to find out the case number and you're told, okay, you need to consult this lever arch file of all the cases in the Queen's Bench Division for £11 for 15 minutes is the current rate. Um, and then you sift through that to find your case number. And then once you've got your case number, you can go and ask for your document. Uh, and then the cost of the document is £10 for a paper copy, up to 10 pages, and then after that you pay 50p per page. Now, so I was sort of doing my maths in my sort of early PhD days thinking, yeah, this, this is going to use up my stipend quite quickly if I want to look at very many cases. Um, and I tried to negotiate bulk access and that didn't get, I didn't get very far with that. So really the, the costs and the time and the, sort of the, the paper-based system makes any kind of bulk analysis of cases impossible. Um, and I was lucky that a law firm had actually been gathering a lot of statements of case and claim forms for a number of years, and they gave me access to those. Um, but of course, I couldn't verify whether that was a complete set or not. I was just sort of going off. I mean, it was useful, but I couldn't say um, much definitively about this set of data. And then in terms of the official statistics that the court service reports, uh, they're pretty minimal. Um, and when the MOJ was doing an impact assessment on the defamation bill and looking at how it might impact society in different ways, uh, they actually produced an estimate of the number of trials, um, which I kind of 
I'm still gobsmacked by the there's so few trials the fact that they couldn't definitively say you know keep a record of how many trials there are in a given year I found that astonishing so they had a number of trials that take place in the Queen's Bench Division overall so they just did a kind of a, a guesstimate on how many of those might be defamation I mean there's so few that really you could talk to any specialist practitioner and they would be able to say what the trials were in a given year and if any of you read the informed blog then that's a pretty reliable way of tracking the, the, the trials that are taking place. Um, they, the Ministry of Justice releases annual statistics on the number of defamation claims issued each year. So that's the claims that are being lodged in court, not the number of hearings. But I'm a little sceptical about how accurate they are um, because we've got no way of verifying how they've been categorised and whether they've been categorised correctly. And also that number's not particularly useful. Um, we've seen a bit of fluctuation over the years. Uh, this year for 2016, the number of claims that was reported was at the lowest level since they started collecting the data at 112. I think at its peak in the mid-90s, it was just over 500. So that's the kind of range of number of cases you're talking about. Um, but I'm be pretty nervous about correlating that to a specific, specific change in the substantive law. So saying, oh, because of the Defamation Act 2013, that's why cases have dropped off. I think there's lots of different factors that you need to think about. Um, we've, we're seeing the growth of privacy litigation. So previously, claimants might have only had the defamation route to go down. If you take something like the Max Mosley case, like he would have been making a decision there about whether to go down the defamation path or the privacy path. I think he's, he's spoken publicly about that. Um, so now you might have a, a claimant pursuing a privacy claim rather than defamation. So that could be, for ex just as one example, of a reason why the cases are declining. <coughs> so I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a sort of a victory of the libel reform campaign, the fact that this, this number is lower now. And of course, cause and effect in law is incredibly difficult to, to ascertain anyway. So that's where I thought the unofficial data uh, collected from journalists and bloggers um, would help shed more light. Um, so I use questionnaires and interviews to add to this anecdotal data that I was hearing all the time. And I got some really mixed results. So of the journalists and bloggers I spoke to, some of them were clearly very affected by pre-2013 acts defamation and felt very threatened and felt that it had a very detrimental effect on the, the type of work that they were able to do. Other people were totally relaxed. I had a, an amazing quote where someone says something like that, that they knew nothing about defamation law, therefore they cared, you know, didn't care about it, therefore it had no impact. Um, it did slightly alarm me. Um, so you just saw that it was so subjective in terms of how people responded to, 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 to defamation and to the potential threat. When I spoke to specialists, so a range of media lawyers, defendant specialists and claimant specialists, barristers and solicitors, in-house and out-of-house, I think there was a, a sort of a unanimous, a unanimous response among the defendant media lawyers about the overreach of defamation law and the negative impact on um, public interest journalism. And I think that's reflected in the government policy ideal for the defamation bill and then the act. Um, and I could say a lot more about all of that, but if anyone's interested in the specifics, and I can send you papers and stuff that I've written in the last few years. But the overall picture is that the data is really pitiful. Uh, few people have really attempted a very systematic empirical analysis. 
Um, it is apt to be speaking at UCL because Professor Eric Berentz, who was, I think, the first chair of media law in, in the law department um, some years ago, um, in the 1990s, he and his collaborators produced a, a, quite a slim volume that looked at the chilling effect in defamation. Uh, and they, they actually had a slightly better access to the court's data than we, than we do now. And that was just before the Defamation Act 1996 came into force. Um, so that's one of the studies. And there are a, a few other attempts that have been made. Um, but really, it's quite neglected, probably because of the, the difficulties of doing that type of research. Um, so given the scarcity of reliable data, I do think it, to me, if I'm sort of to comment on the efficacy of the act and, 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 and its impact, I'd say it's, it's a little bit early to call it. I mean, there's still such a small body of case law. Um, and then there's also all these issues that have been left unaddressed. So we've had loads of discussion in recent years around cost reform. But as far as I'm aware at the moment, the, the, the cost issue has sort of been parked for defamation and privacy cases and hasn't been dealt with. Um, and that's a, a massive one because that clearly is going to be the major factor when people are making decisions about whether to take a risk or not, is looking at how much things could cost them. Um, so we await reform in that area. And there's also just sort of general procedural issues uh, that make the process very slow. Um, and that also can have an impact on the decisions that are made. Um, so the final thing that I wanted to mention before handing over was just, a, a, I think, a positive development in the past year. So Mr. Justice Warby, one of the specialist members of the judiciary, um, previously uh, a media specialist barrister, um, has been appointed the judge in charge of a new media and communications list at the Royal Courts of Justice, um, and that includes defamation cases. And so he's set up meetings for a wide user group of people that are interested in media cases, and then he's formed a smaller committee of representatives as well. So I'm sitting on the committee as a representative of the public interest, which is quite a grand claim, isn't it? But, um, I sort of managed to weave, sort of get in there, despite not being a proper lawyer. I have told him that. Um, and the committee is mainly dealing with procedural issues. Um, so that obviously the certain things that would be out of the remit of a, a judicial committee. Um, and then the other members of the committee are mainly, I can see one sitting in the room, um, specialists from the bar or from solicitor firms uh, representing you know, claimant and defendant interests to think about how we could improve some of the procedure and the way that defamation is, is done through the court. I think it's a really, you know, as I said, a positive development that the, the doors have been opened a bit in terms of being able to have input into improving these processes. Um, and if anyone is interested in getting updates from me on the, especially on the access to information side of things and the, the issues that I'm interested in, then I'm happy to share that with you. And uh, Mr. Justice Warby's clerk also shares that information with quite a, a large group of people. And I think it's, that's open to anyone that's sort of got a special interest. So if you are um, interested in receiving that information, I can pass that inf that, that, those, her details on to you. And from my perspective, in terms of data access, I, I'm really encouraged by the fact that Mr. Justice Warby seems to think that the, the data and the transparency issues are important and has seems to be receptive to the, to the idea that maybe we could improve um, the ways things are done. Some of that would obviously rely getting the Ministry of Justice and the court service on board with um, making certain reforms. Um, but if we do manage to have progress in that area, then it would help us monitor the effects of the Defamation Act 2013 much more effectively than we have been able to do so far. So, thank you.
thanks very much, Judith. Um, so now Alex is going to talk about cross-border defamation and social media, uh, which is, well, social media, defamation, lies. It's all very relevant right now. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so like a, like a good lawyer, I'm going to start with a disclaimer, which is to say that I'm not really a defamation lawyer. Um, I'm uh, more of, well, my specialism is more in private international law, which is the law dealing with cross-border private law disputes and relationships, um, in particular questions of jurisdictions, so at which courts get to hear cross-border disputes, and questions of choice of law, what law should govern cross-border legal relationships. Um, but I've become interested in defamation, and I've written a bit about defamation because it's raised some of the most difficult modern issues in uh, private international law. Um, but actually, I think the converse is also true, which is to say defamation lawyers need to get interested in private international law um, because one of the most significant modern challenges for defamation is the fact that communication so readily crosses borders, um, particularly uh, through social media, um, which is the focus of my uh, remarks today. So I want to make three simple points. First of all, in an era of social media, it's extremely easy for individuals to commit defamation around the world. Uh, the second point is that it's extremely difficult to work out how to respond to this problem legally. Uh, and the third point, um, which is I think perhaps more challenging, is that in practice many of these problems are as a result actually being dealt with not by state law, but by private quasi-legal standards. Okay, so first of all, the, uh, the first point is relatively straightforward. Every time you tweet or post on Facebook, that's a publication in the eyes of the law, uh, just as much as if you published a newspaper article or wrote a book. Where does that publication take place? Generally, the legal analysis is that it takes place where it is received and read. In other words, when you post on Facebook, you are potentially a global publisher. And if your post is defamatory, you're potentially committing defamation in a large number of co different countries around the world. Uh, and at least in the way these issues are analysed in the common law world, also many uh, states outside the common law world, each place where the communication is received constitutes a separate tort, uh, except for limitation period uh, purposes under the Defamation Act. But for jurisdictional purposes or for private international purposes, each place where the communication is received is a different tort. So you could say that we live in uh, a golden age for defamation. There's probably more defamation going on today uh, than ever before in history. <laughs> the second point is that it's proven extremely difficult to respond to the legal problems created by this. So to explain what I mean by this, it's, uh, we have to distinguish between the questions of jurisdiction and the questions of applicable law. If we're dealing with questions of jurisdiction, we're asking where can we sue someone for defamation? Now, simplifying, the usual answer is that we can sue the defendant in their home court, we can sue them where they acted, or we can sue them in the place where the defamation was committed, which is to say where the publication was viewed. So the law on jurisdiction in England at the moment is a combination of common law and EU law, and this basic answer is the same under each of these frameworks. So this has created two problems that, uh, that the law has been um, dealing with. The first problem is that if the defendant can be sued in any place where a defamation was committed, then publishing something on the internet means that you can be sued potentially in any court in the world. Now, for claimants with reputations in more than one jurisdiction, 
This creates an incentive to forum shop, uh, which is to say, go to the court which is most advantageous for the claimant. Uh, until recently, the English courts were the biggest beneficiary of this, the destination of choice for what became known as libel tourism. So one of the important changes made to law on defamation recently comes from Section 9 of the Defamation Act, 2013, uh, which requires the English courts to do two things. First of all, take into, account, take into account the whole worldwide context of a publication before deciding if the English courts should hear the case. And second of all, only hear the case if they are clearly the most appropriate forum uh, to hear the case. Now, it's not clear how much these changes actually change the law. Um, the, the first one of these, uh, I would say, um, the better view was that the law was already, uh, in, um, already adopted the rule that the court should take into account the worldwide context before uh, deciding whether or not the English court should hear the case. Um, although there was some uncertainty about the point. So perhaps the Defamation Acts clarified uh, that issue. On the second point, that the court should only hear the case if they're clearly the most appropriate forum, uh, that arguably shifts the law slightly if you're dealing with English defendants, because the test used to be uh, whether there is no other clearly more appropriate forum. Um, so if you have equally appropriate forums, that wouldn't satisfy the Defamation Act test, uh, but it would have satisfied the old uh, English law, uh, common law test. So this only applies for claims against non-EU uh, non defendants where the question of jurisdiction is governed by English law and not European Union law. Uh, the Defamation Act doesn't affect the European Union rules on jurisdiction. It can't. Um, the EU rules trump uh, UK statutes. So the second problem that's been created um, by uh, the sort of flourishing of cross-border defamation is that if a claimant has a reputation in multiple jurisdictions uh, and actually does want to recover damages for all their lost reputation, they have a choice. They can either go to the defendant's home court, the publisher's home court, which is likely to be pretty disadvantageous for the claimant, or um, they can bring separate proceedings in every place in which their reputation has been damaged, which is also highly inconvenient and impractical uh, for most claimants. So for cases covered by the European Union rules on jurisdiction, the Court of Justice of the European Union has come up with a novel solution here. If you're suing an EU defendant in defamation, you have an additional choice. You can also bring proceedings in the courts of the location of your centre of interests for all the damage to your reputation worldwide. Uh, in other words, because internet defamation is such a potential problem, the Court of Justice has said that individuals have to be able to sue in their own home court um, for all defamation on the internet. So what's interesting here is that we have these complexities of modern cross-border defamation. The UK legislative response has been to make it harder to sue, but the European Union response, the Court of Justice of the European Union response, has been to try and make it easier to sue uh, because it's too hard for claimants to succeed uh, where their reputation is damaged uh, in a number of different jurisdictions. I think this really highlights the kind of complexity of the issues uh, we're dealing with. Second main issue is the question of choice of law. Um, what law should govern uh, cross-border uh, uh, defamation? Now obviously, we have a basic challenge here, which is that defamation law seeks to balance 
the rights of the speaker and the rights of other people, the rights of reputation, as well as broader public interests in free speech. Um, so what law should govern defamation if the speaker and the uh, subject of the speech are in different jurisdictions? Which public is affected here? Um, that, uh, whose interests should uh, govern? Um, so to work out what law governs a uh, private law claim, we apply what are called choice of law rules. Um, do we apply the law of the place of the speaker or the law of the place of the recipient? And the difficulty here is that choosing one or the other has uh, complex policy consequences. If we say that speakers are governed by their home law, then you create something like free speech havens, which is to say someone in a country with extremely strong free speech protection can damage the reputation of other people around the world uh, who have nothing to do with that country, um, but they're always governed by their home law. On the other hand, if you say speakers are governed by the law of the place of the recipient, then you create something like a free speech race at the bottom, which is to say, uh, if someone publishes something online and it's communicated around the world, they can potentially be subject to a large number of different laws. And if you want to avoid being subject to uh, any lawsuits, you have to comply with all of those laws, which means you have to comply with the lowest common denominator of free speech of all of those jurisdictions. Now, the current situation in the UK is that choice of law in defamation is actually governed by a rule developed by the courts in the 19th century known as the double actionability rule. Um, it's a rule that's long been criticised and it's been abandoned for everything else except defamation. But for defamation, we just have not been able to come up with anything better. Uh, and I think that's because the policy issues around cross-border defamation are so hard. And, and choosing a choice of law rule is actually making a policy choice uh, about uh, free speech across borders, which is extremely difficult. So the third uh, point that I wanted to make is that this is all very well in theory, but in practice, litigating defamation cases is an extremely expensive and risky business. And uh, as, as Judith has said, not many of us are really capable of bringing legal proceedings for defamation at all, even for purely domestic cases let alone proceedings in foreign or multiple uh, jurisdictions. So with my focus on social media, if we think someone has defamed us on Facebook, and this happens a lot for companies getting bad reviews of, uh, of things or posts you know, on their, um, on their, uh, um, their timeline, whatever it might be, we don't go to the courts. We complain to Facebook. We ask Facebook to take the information down, to take the post down. And so, in practice, the person who's really deciding what gets published on social media is not a judge, but a Facebook administrator. And they're not applying English law or foreign law. They're applying Facebook's community standards. Now, if you read Facebook's community standards, they're not a set of rules of national law. They're a replication of rules of law invented by Facebook to govern Facebook's global community that they're in a sense a private system of law which includes rules of defamation law. So the rules which really regulate free speech on social media, I would say, are not so much state laws but private rules developed by Facebook to replace them. Now on the one hand, Facebook's system of complaints handling is a lot more accessible for individuals than the English courts. Uh, so there's a benefit here in terms of access to justice. 
there's a benefit here in terms of uh, being able to practically protect your reputation by getting things taken down. On the other hand, we're in real danger of uh, sitting idly by here while the regulatory power of state governments is transferred to private organisations who are accountable only to shareholders and who may have their own agendas. Uh, and that's not to mention Cambridge Analytica. Mm. <laughs> uh, so I want to leave you with a final thought. Facebook spent a lot of time and effort arguing that it's not a media organisation. It's a platform. Uh, it doesn't provide content. It just provides infrastructure. It's like the phone network rather than uh, like a newspaper. Actually, it seems to me that Facebook is not only a new form of media, uh, but also a new form of media regulation. Uh, and to me, this raises fundamental questions uh, about the future role of defamation law uh, alongside these private forms of regulation, uh, which are increasingly influential. Uh, thank you okay. very much. I, I kind of agree with all of that. Uh, <laughs> we're coming down on slides. Um, finally, uh, Robert Sharp is going to speak on the libel reform campaign? Uh, yeah, um, I've got a few things. May um, agree slightly less with you, we'll see. Uh, we'll see, yeah. <laughs> um, well, thanks to the University and the Institute for inviting me and to Harry for chairing. Uh, I've already learned a lot um, from the previous speakers. Um, yeah, Rachel, this, this, this framework for, for when law should, should be changed is, is really interesting. Um, I've got a lot to engage with on, on your presentation, which I'll maybe do in the discussion yeah. rather than um, now. Um, Judith, um, I can't read my own handwriting, but did you say defamation interactions as a kind of or defamation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that was I'm just, not, sure. yeah. just that phrase, is, yeah. is just that way of formulation is, 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 is great. Um, and I'd not heard about double actionability rule before, not in those terms anyway. Um, so yeah, I was sort of scribbling down all, all your quotes and everything. <laughs> Um, and yeah, part of the reason for being excited to come here was to sort of um, learn from other, other people. Um, uh, let me talk briefly about um, English Pen, um, which might give some context of what I'm doing here, um, because I'm not a lawyer. Um, <laughs> in fact, I think, there, isn't there like a, a, an old statute that says if you share a panel with a couple of lawyers, you have to make the joint joke about not two lawyers and three opinions? <laughs> so... But what I've been wondering is if there's, if there's four lawyers, is that, is that five opinions or is it exponential? <laughs> Big questions. Uh, anyway, that statutory duty done. Um, we are English Pen, uh, uh, we're a writers association, uh, essentially founded here in London uh, in 1921, uh, but we're a founding centre of a worldwide network uh, of, of pen centres. And um, we, our pen charter uh, promotes, uh, says that we promote literature across frontiers and we seek, down, uh, seek to uh, break down the barriers to literature uh, and freedom of expression. Um, so uh, language is, is a barrier to literature. What if your favourite novel is in a language you don't understand? Um, so we promote multilingualism. Uh, we've got an Arts Council funded uh, translation programme uh, that brings the best of world literature into the English language. Uh, and a couple of books we supported um, have just been nominated for the Man Booker International. Um, I'll, I'll tell you about them uh, later. Um, literacy is also a barrier to, to literature. You need to be able to read and write uh, if, uh, to exercise your freedom of expression. 
Um, so we promote literacy, we run uh, outreach uh, workshops um, that give people, um, well, in the programmes that we run, who, who are actually new to this country, uh, maybe new to the English language, um, the chance to try creative writing, um, creating a, a platform for, for um, uh, new and, and diverse voices. Um, we also run literary events as well, putting authors in front of audiences. Um, and if any of you go to the London Book Fair, we've got a big uh, literary salon there, a series of author talks. Um, but the thing we are probably best known for um, is our free speech campaigns, our work on the, the legal barriers to, to expression. Uh, Penn actually has observer status at the UN. Um, we campaign for writers all around the world. Uh, many are in prison or, or on trial. Uh, many are in exile. Uh, many have been attacked. Uh, and too many are dead uh, because they've been murdered by rogue states or, or organised crime. Um, and part of our work has to be in the UK uh, too because the UK needs, needs to set an international example. Um, many countries, particularly in the Commonwealth, um, have laws that are based on the, on the British system. Uh, and many retain and use those laws, even the ones that the UK have got rid of. Um, I think particularly here about the criminal libel laws, um, which we only abolished um, in the Coroners and, and Justice Act of, um, of 2009, um, which was when the libel reform campaign uh, was started. Um, and a common objection from companies that do violate free speech uh, is that the UK does it too. And that's not generally true, but it's important that the, the UK leads the way on free speech, or we believe. Um, and of course, keeping free speech uh, free <laughs> as possible is a virtue um, in itself. It's what keeps democracy strong. And I think many of the perceived threats to our democracy here in the UK and in the USA um, have to do with expression and speech and how we conduct our, our discourse. And you mentioned the Facebook issue in the news this week. Uh, and of course, this problem of fake news that's, that's sort of, I assume, one of the inspirations for this seminar series. Um, anyone can be a member of Penn uh, if you support our, our mission, uh, but we've traditionally drawn uh, our support from the publishing industry, authors, poets, journalists, editors, literary agents, um, and they support us because of the work we do, um, standing in solidarity with writers around the world. The libel reform campaign was unique in that it was something that directly affected our members. <laughs> um, so we heard from publishers in our network, um, both big and small, uh, that they were really affected by the libel laws. Um, and we also heard about people around the world who are being affected by the uh, system in England and Wales. Um, and this phenomenon of libel tourism that you mentioned which is when someone rich comes to London to sue, uh, but there's a, a, a corollary, um, which is libel kidnap, um, which is defendants being dragged to London to, to defend the case, which was what we were concerned about. And th this was a real phenomenon. Um, uh, there was the sort of celebrated case that Harry and I were talking about um, at the start between uh, uh, Khalid bin Mahfouz, um, who was a Saudi, and Rachel Ehrenfeld, who was an American, um, she was over a book that was published only in America, but, but in the UK. Um, there was uh, Thing. I don't know if that's how to pronounce it, it's an Icelandic name, um, suing Extra Bladet from, from Denmark, Denmark um, but in the UK courts. Um, 
uh, Sheikh Ren Reni Rashid Ganoushi from Tunisia suing um, Al Arabia from Dubai. Um, Renat uh, uh, Akhmatov from Ukraine suing, suing the Kiev Post um, for an article written in Ukrainian and published in the, in the Ukraine. Um, so, you know, these sort of cases did happen and we simply felt that it wasn't, uh, it was odd, to say the least, that, that um, this was happening in, in London. Um, it was also the case that when people wrote about human rights violations, they were sued by the violators. So Human Rights Watch had to defend a report um, against a gen genocidaire um, from Rwanda, um, global Witness has multiple threats made by loggers and, and uh, uh, diamond mining companies. Um, and Little Brown, the publisher, uh, owned by Hachette, so, uh, spent two years defending a book called Slave um, by Mendy Nazar uh, about her experience of being trafficked and kept in, in modern slavery. In all these cases, um, not one word of the original publication was changed or withdrawn. Uh, in all three cases, um, Global Witness in multiple cases, uh, the, the, the defendant prevailed. Uh, but nevertheless, they said it was still a problem because of the cost um, of uh, and the time uh, defending uh, the case. Um, and and uh, if, you, if you're spending money uh, defending a libel case, you're not spending it on other human rights campaigns. Uh, if you're a publisher spending money uh, on libel, uh, then you're not spending it on more books. And... Uh, the, uh, the popular booker-winning authors will always get a book deal. So who is it who misses out in those circumstances? Who doesn't get published? Well, it's the diverse voices, it's the new voices, the minority voices, the risky voices um, that the, the publishers decide they, they can't afford to take a punt on. Um, so that's why we, we launched that, ca that campaign, a real um, uh, 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 drive and ask from, uh, fr from our members and our constituency. Um, the campaign, I, I suppose we can say it was successful because we got the Defamation Act and it does have measures that we asked for uh, in some form. There's certainly not a one-to-one -one, um, relationship between the, the first 10 recommendations that we published in, in the report that you mentioned. Um, but, um, and in fact, we don't, we don't quite stand by everything in that report <laughs> eight, years, eight years later. Um, but uh, uh, there were measures that we, we supported and, and approved and asked for. Uh, there's a lot to be said about Section uh, 1, um, as, as Rachel says, um, and, and Section 4, uh, which five years on has never had a test case. Um, uh, I have a lot to say about Section 5, even if no one else has. Yeah. Maybe you and I can <laughs> yeah, geek we, out on we, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is the internet um, thing that you, you, you mentioned. I won't talk about uh, uh, that for now. So I'm just going to talk about the nature of the campaign. There was, first thing to mention, is there was consensus from all the political parties that there should be some kind of update. Um, all the parties had reform in their 2010 manifesto and the parliamentary process was quite collegiate. Um, and I think, I think Lord Tom McNally, um, who led the bill, uh, led on the bill from the House of Lords, Ministry of Justice, uh, Minister... Uh, Liberal Democrat. Um, he should take the bulk of the credit for that. Um, but Rob Flello and Sadiq Khan on the Labour side, and, uh, uh, Baroness Diane Hayter, um, and also Lord Brian Mawinney, um, who chaired the Joint Committee, the Scrutiny 
um, committee, they all worked hard to make it collaborative. And I sat in the committee sessions in the Commons, um, and I think that's how uh, legislation should be uh, conducted. Um, parliamentarians really um, uh, uh, getting behind the, the, the points and quite detailed discussions um, over points of law. Uh, one thing, uh, infuriatingly, I, I now couldn't put my hands on it. I, um, I published something um, right after the, the, uh, bill was the bill was enacted, became the Defamation Act. Um, it's called the Defamation Act 2013, Complete and Unabridged. And it is in book form, every piece of parliamentary paper, um, all the Hansard, all the amendments, all the versions of the bill. Um, and it runs two volumes of, of um, a couple of thousand pages. Um, and I want to sort of have it here to show you how much parliamentary legislation went into it. There are a couple of mischievous lawyers who say that there was a rush to legislation, that it wasn't thought through. And uh, those books, I think, um, prove otherwise. So I'm sorry I couldn't bring them uh, with you. You can, you can buy them <laughs> online. I don't make any money out of it. The Open Government <laughs> Licence says that I can distribute it, but not make any money. But you can order it online. Um, uh, so so the, that consensus, that collegiate aspect, um, it did not come from the media or even the publishing industry that was demanding change, because of course the media were always demanding change, and that was uh, a great uh, 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 asset to the campaign, was the fact that we did get editorials in the Times, uh, the Guardian and the, the Telegraph and the rest asking for reform. Of course we did. Um, but what I, in my opinion, what flipped the politician's mind uh, was the scientists and the doctors who were complaining uh, about being sued. Uh, the most egregious example of this was Peter Wilmshurst, a very eminent cardiologist um, who was sued by a health company uh, called NMT Medical um, over a heart implant. Uh, Peter had conducted the clinical trials on this heart implant uh, and at a conference in, in Canada, he said, um, uh, he said that it didn't work uh, and got sued for it. Um, and over the course of that case, which he fought um, and ultimately won uh, at great personal distress and cost to himself, it transpired that um, at least two other cardiologists had been uh, threatened into silence um, by, uh, by the same company over the same issue. Um, and that was over uh, a, a heart implant that didn't work. Um, one reason the thalidomide scandal took so long to be exposed uh, by the Times uh, in the 80s or maybe 70s, um, I think was, was also because of fears of being sued by the ph pharmaceutical companies. That was the, um, that's what flicked a switch in the mind of the politicians. Um, I think. Um, the reform, as you, as you may know, wasn't extended to, to Northern Ireland or Scotland. Scotland took on a couple of um, aspects, the, the, the peer review aspect. Um, but in both cases, the respective law commissions um, did studies that ended up with recommendations for reform and, and a draft bill. Um, the Northern Ireland Law Commission then got abolished and the Stormont Assembly isn't sitting, so there's many there's sort of stasis there. Um, but um, in fact, this week, my colleagues at Scottish Pen, um, including Ian Rankin, Christopher Brookmeyer, 
um, and a hundred other authors have, have just written to the minister asking that now reform there be, be brought forward. Um, so that's where we are with the campaign. Um, I just want to say something about just about the broad nature of the, the libel law um, as that I sort of observe as a non-lawyer. <laughs> the first is that the law uh, was not founded and created all those centuries ago um, with any concern for the truth. Um, when it was conceived of as an offence, there was, there was no offence of tr truth in the law. <laughs> um, it was created to protect the reputations of powerful people. And in fact, early in my, my research in, into this, um, I'll have to dig out the, the reference um, for you. Uh, it showed that in, in the time of the Star Chamber, actually, if, if what you said was true, that meant you were punished more. Because obviously a true, <laughs> it's not a true statement is worse and lowers your reputation more than something that's ultimately shown to be, be, be false. Um, and I, I think we also know that the, the law that we know today began to be codified um, around the same time that they were sort of trying to abolish duels in the park. I've been defamed, sir. I demand satisfaction. <laughs> Um, and certainly the, 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 the single publication rule, or the multiple publication rule as it was, bizarre, um, makes perfect sense in the age when, you know, Lord Sharp has written a poison pen letter to Lady Townend. And if I write two, that's obviously worse than writing one or handing out handbills on the street that I've cranked with my press. Um, so, oh, and one final thing about that, in Scots law, where they, they, there's no requirement to, to make your defamatory imputation to a third party, a legal historian in one of the round tables we held up there was telling us that that was so that the lords of the manor, the lairds, uh, had some way of, of keeping their servants in order. You know, if you talk back to your master, um, there, was, there was a mechanism... There, you didn't. It didn't need to be witnessed by anyone else before you could be um, suppressed. Um, so that you know, when we're talking about lies and we're talking about reputation, um, the the law is grounded in, uh, in not in a concern for the truth, and and I think that's I think that's important. I think a lot of the issues um, that we were trying to fix with the defamation. Uh, Act 2013 were sort of grounded in, in that sort of presumption of um, a gentleman's good reputation. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, which, which speaks to um, Rachel's presentation in particular, I think, is that there wasn't one, one piece of law that we needed to correct and to fix. There was no sort of silver bullet. So there was lots of, what we felt was that there was lots of aspect of the law, so the pre presumption of harm, the inflexible definition of, of, of truth, um, after the event insurance premiums and conditional fee arrangements, um, case management decisions and related to the presumption of, of jury and when you determine meaning, um, also lawyers' fees. Um, and the, the fact that some of the defences were very uh, complex because they'd been developed over many years of law um, and, and, and the trivial claims, the, the, you know, the possibility you could go after a secondary publisher. And so 
when these were tweaked, the effect wasn't to draw a nice bright line between the virtuous public interest free speech on the one hand and then the righteous protection of reputation on the other. There's still a massive grey area. And the test cases we've seen, like uh, Cook and Le Show, um on Section 1, um, and under the old, uh, old uh, defence, the Flood uh, and, and Reynolds, um, there, there are huge grey areas where... Um, uh, and those grey areas do still exist under, under the Defamation Act 2013. Um, we can't deny that. Um, and I think there would still exist however we write the law. But what I do think is that the centre of gravity has shifted a little um, to, to, towards free speech. And um, uh, you know, I do talk to lawyers who, who sort of back that up. Um, so just to, to conclude my, my remarks, I, I'll just observe and affirm that there is a right to, rep, to reputation. Uh, and Penn and the Libel Reform campaign, we, we, we campaign, we're not free speech extremists. Um, and we do think that there should be effective remedies for, for ordinary people being smeared by, by wealthy media companies. Um, we actually uh, uh, did a project called the Alternative Libel, Libel, Alternative Libel Project, which was chaired by uh, Stephen Sedley, uh, and Eric Berent was on, was on that, that panel, um, that recommended um, increased use of, of mediation um, to perhaps take some of the financial sting um, out of libel disputes. Um, and if there were more of those kind of <laughs> kind of disputes, then um, I, I don't think that we would we, I don't think we would knee jerk um, uh, uh, object to that. Um, so yeah, there is this right right to reputation, and it, it's derived from Article Eight. But that's human rights law, um, and one thing we're looking at and talk about is whether companies should be taken out of the law. Um, because they don't have any feelings <laughs> um, uh, and, and can't, can't have that sort, of, that sort of psychological, visceral distress that individuals who are smeared uh, undoubtedly experience. And so um, I do wonder whether we should really um, create some kind of bespoke law that relates to companies. Um, so maybe we can talk about that um, later too. Um, so those are the end of my remarks. Um, yeah, let's see where Great. it goes. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, I'm conscious of time. I think we've probably got another half hour. And so I was just going to start a, f a, a few conversations and, 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 and see, see, where, see where we get to. I'm, I'm interested, um, Robert, in your idea, because we're... we're where, where you come from is that you, you, you're acting for, in general, very worthy causes and people. Um, in general, you're acting for people who are publishing serious books most of the time. They, yeah. they, may, they may be telling, you know, it's their slant. Mm -hmm. or, uh, or you're acting for other people who are, who are sort of serious writers or mm -hmm. expressors of, of thoughts. And that's well and good, and I don't mm. think anyone would doubt that those people, sh you know, the, 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 they should be afforded as much freedom of speech and a genuine opinion as possible. But it's, I'm just interested to know, and I know we spoke about this briefly, and I'm interested as to, to what everyone thinks about, at the moment, I mean, the title of this, uh, this series is Lies, and it seems to me that there's 
an increasing amount of lying going on and people saying things not because they're holding an opinion that's different to that that everyone else holds, but they're just lying because they think that will have their, you know, the, the, their desired end. Yeah. And I, I wonder where you and, and, and all of the panel come out on that and, and what we should be doing mm. about that. Um, the Penn Charter has four clauses. Um, the first is very short. It's literature knows no frontiers and must maintain, main, be maintained. Oh, I can't. I can't now repeat it from my head. <laughs> because I mean, much Alex of Gale. what is being written, um, I think literature is a generous term. Yeah. Um, the uh, one thing that our uh, fourth clause um, stands for is, is a free press, but also it introduces the idea that freedom also. Um, or should include the idea of restraint and so uh, pen members uh, stand against the idea of, of well it was written in 1948 so the term uses mendacious publication um, and there, there isn't a public interest in, in outright lies and people going out of their way to lie um, that what's just so difficult is, is um, uh, you know arbitrating that between uh, and actually looking at a, at a piece of content one determining its truth in the first instance um and two two then delving down into um the uh, whether someone is maliciously lying yeah please well i mean lies take very different forms and so i would be nervous about proposing that we try and ban all lying mm. Um, because it's, it's whether it reaches a certain threshold or not and whether it causes harm in a yeah. certain kind of way, I think. Um, so, yeah, in the, so in the in the fake news phenomena, yeah. phenomena yeah, you, you want people to be held account to the things that they say and it's going to determine who they are and mm. in what context they make those remarks. So mm. you need better regulatory mechanisms, but law isn't always going to be appropriate mm. to deal with that. There might be a social response as well. Well... Um, but 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 that's not happening. It doesn't seem to be happening at the moment. It it, it depends, doesn't it? It just depends what kind of lies you're talking about. I think. Yeah. So. But I, I I guess what what would slightly concern me is that I, I I you said that there's the lowest ever recorded defamation cases was last year. Mm -hmm. And my experience, just as a lawyer, is, is that certainly the, one of the reasons is because there's many other means of, of seeking to protect your reputation than defamation. But the defamation cases are down, and uh, and as Alex said, now is the the height of more defamation is is taking place every day than ever before. And so I, I might see it as slightly concerning that defamation cases were down. Because that, that strikes me that people feel unable to enforce their rights to reputation. Although we don't know what's happening out of court because we've got no data on mm. where someone seeks redress and then reaches an out-of-court settlement. Mm. Like there is no official record of that. Um, sure, but I mean, arguably it would be nice to see an increase in, I mean, not just from a selfish point of view, <laughs> but... Um, it would be nice to see an increase in, in defamation cases. Well, no, it would, you would, one would expect to see an increase in defamation cases because I think it's undeniable that there is an increasing amount of defamatory comment. These things are quite hard to, um, I mean, to uh, study empirically because yeah. uh, sometimes the, 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 the great sort of success of a law reform 
is if there is no taste law because it's clarified the law mm. so well mm, yeah. that it no longer needs to be tested <laughs> yeah. and the cases settle because yeah. or you know or it provides sufficient guidance so the, that the uh, doesn't exist um, yeah. so that parties modify their behavior in accordance with this new clear guidance now i'm not necessarily suggesting the defamation act is you know is that but it, but it does make it i mean the the, the complexities of, under, of understanding the impact of the law and 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 you know why there might be fewer cases is, yeah. is an extremely difficult thing and you know to, to study as, as you would know uh, uh, better than I. <laughs> I think also funding is very very important yeah. in this field um, and mm. when you think of social media and, and you know teenagers can be um, very badly affected by what people say about them on yeah. social media and uh, I, I was struck uh, the Civil Justice Council uh, did a report on before the event insurance. Uh, it was published a, a few months ago, and I chaired that group. Mm. And we spent six months looking at BTE insurance. And I was struck by how many policies, and each of you should go home and have a look at your household contents insurance or your motor vehicle insurance. Mm. You probably have more than one BTE policy. Most people in England do. 25 million households in England have BTE. Many millions of those don't even know they have it because it's um, added into insurance products. Um, it, it, it's easier now um, to, to know about it because you can't um, actually be, be dragged in. You've got to opt, you, you, I mean, you've got, you, you can't um, be forced to opt out. You've got to opt in, but sometimes BT comes as a package, in which case many people don't know about it. In any event, the point that I'm getting to <laughs> is that um, the, um, if you go and look at your policies, defamation is often excluded. And malicious prosecution is, is often excluded. And um, I, I think that it's the sort of product that if it, were, if it weren't an exclusion in many policies, then it mm. may be a means by which those who have suffered um, what they believe harm to their reputation for a certain sum of money, they could use a lawyer to bring their action. And indeed, as we know, or most do it without settle, a lawyer. Or do it without a lawyer, yes, yeah. if, they, if they could. Um, the BT caps are usually 25,000. I mean, mm. it's not a lot of money, but still it would be enough money to be able to, 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 to do something to, yeah. to, to get some sort of redress. Mm -hmm. So I, I think funding is such an important aspect of and, this. And, and did you look much? Because I know there was a... Um, is it IPSO? Under IPSO, there was, the, uh, there was meant to be this arbitration mm. scheme, which no one has taken up which always struck me as a very good idea. I mean, we, we, we recommended it to clients um, and it, it never went anywhere. I think it probably would have been the media. I, I think one problem was, was it, with it was that media organizations wouldn't have had to take it up. So you could offer arbitration and they didn't have to accept. But to us, it seemed very attractive because it would, and to most of our clients who don't want to go to trial, especially because that obviously makes an enormous play of the, this thing they're trying to keep secret and so the arbitration would have been secretive but did you do if, did you look because we found there's not a single person has taken up this no i haven't looked at that aspect yeah. no, i mean this is the one big topic we haven't mentioned this evening is press regulation in general and the whole yeah. point of the reforms that were coming out of leveson was the mm. idea that you would create an alternative route that would yeah. mean that people didn't necessarily have to go to the courts that you would have another route but obviously for anyone that's followed the uh, fireworks around the Royal Charter and the Crime and Courts Act, um, and, and and now we've had the government saying it's actually going to attempt to repeal Section 40 of the yeah. Crime and Courts Act, which would create that mechanism yes. to do what you just said, to, to push people down that route. Yeah. It's been enormously controversial, um, and the newspapers aren't on board with that idea at all. No. And 
I think it's it's possibly lost popular support now as well. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's still a, a big push for for that mechanism via the hacked off campaign and via sort of a pro But it makes sense to us because you just get the costs rack up unnecessarily. Time is spent unnecessarily. Where actually, if you just got a a reasonably sensible arbiter, you can give them a relatively small amount of documents and they could probably come to the same decision as a judge is going to come to three years down the line having brought enormous publicity to it. I think we should be revisiting the proposals that you know, Rob and your colleagues mm, looked at mm. in terms of alternative libel routes and, mm, yeah. um, and, and be looking for a more attractive reason for both publishers and for claimants to be going down mm. that these alternative routes yeah. may not be in the, the favour of all the lawyers in the room. But, no, 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 but, I, we, um, we agree. I mean, a lot of the time clients of ours, you know, and uh, especially when tabloids write, tabloids are very particularly bullish. We may, if we have time, get to Rachel on whether serious harm has changed anything. Um, I'd be interested to know the answer. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I don't know the answer, but, but um, our view, my view is that the tabloids have certainly strengthened feel emboldened, felt emboldened by it, even if there hasn't been, um, yeah, if, if there hasn't been that much of a, of a change. One, sorry, on, on uh, section one, one aspect of the Cook case that I thought was very interesting, because um, it, it actually related to something that we suggested that wasn't taken on uh, by Parliament. Um, we suggested there would be a sort of a defence of prompt correction <laughs> That if you uh, sort of related to public interest defence, that maybe if you if you if you quickly um, acknowledged your mistake and corrected it, um, thereby giving the defendant uh, uh, the claimant a, a sort of strong and immediate, very public vindication, um, that you then uh, that would be a defence against a full sort of libel um, uh, claim uh, at a later date. Parliament didn't go for that, but. Uh, in the Cook case, which was the first, um, I think, to be sort of tested under under yeah, the new, yeah. um, the reason uh, the uh, Mirror, Mirror Group, yeah, yeah. Mirror. Uh, reason the Mirror Group prevailed in that case was because uh, as soon as they realised that I think they'd actually published it in an earlier draft of the article than they'd meant to, um, which had these snide references to Mrs. Cook um, that uh, and her salary that that shouldn't really have been in there. Um, they immediately said, yeah, <laughs> uh, we shouldn't have done that, um, we'll take the article down. Even and so, um, it, and it was true, it was true. Was also um, so, uh, and uh, you know, what the judge, uh, Judge Bean, um, I think, uh, you know, sort of said that, well, you know, now, now the, only, the only thing you can read about Mrs. Cook on Mirror is an apology <laughs> for, having, um, for having sort of dragged her name into it. Um, so, uh, which you know goes to the issues with 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 um, serious harm and what it what it means. But the idea then that uh, if you if you make something wrong and you quickly take it down um, and and publish a correction, um, you know, seems to me it seems to me the the sort of correction defence that we we were sort of asking for all along sort of um, had found its way into the case law. And the show has got. So yes, so the show um, seems to be seems to be winding it back. Going to section, there's been a couple of cases in other jurisdictions where um, 
information, uh, sort of defamatory uh, information is being posted online, and although the actual original poster has taken it down, yes. it's been picked Indeed, up by yeah. search engines sure. and and given a kind of enduring life, yes. um, which yeah. which is obviously a complicating Indeed, factor yeah. with that for for online material. Yeah. But yeah, I'm interested. Just we mentioned we touched on section forty, and I know that. You, uh, yeah. you, you supported the repeal. <laughs> so, so, yeah, we um, we we did two. The, the main bit of analysis that we, we did was just we sort of, in fact, um, yeah, the, the section forty was created in a rush um, at the same time as the Defamation Act. Actually, um, it, that, that sort of spring of twenty, the heady spring of twenty thirteen. <laughs> Um, and so it was inserted in the very last stage of the parliamentary procedure. It didn't go through proper parliamentary scrutiny, the sort of committee stages in both houses of parliament. Um, it was sort of lightly sort of slapped in. Um, and you ended up with this relevant publisher clause, um, which meant that, uh, which we felt was ambiguous, that um, publications that uh, shouldn't have been included in the sort of relevant publisher list of people who would be be um, be hit with the, the section forty measures um, would um, uh, uh, lawyers or people could make could could make mischief <laughs> with that by telling telling small publishers and blogs that they are a relevant publisher and will be hit and, and because they're not a member of a regulator you will be hit with damages. So we were concerned about the, the ambiguity of that. We weren't quite sure who had to join the regulator. Um, and then going on to that, this notion that um, because of the, the punitive costs measures in Section 40, um, it effectively meant that people could, could uh, would be coerced um, into, into joining the regulator. There was, um, you're making it financially untenable for them to do anything else, uh, which meant it's not a choice to join the regulator anymore. Um, but I, I wonder whether I'm now there is what others think about. Um, yeah, so that was that was that was I'm just because yeah. to us uh, the, the regulation of the press is not not up to standard at the moment. I mean, the Guardian just aren't engaged in any, nor are the FT. I don't think if so, we think is entirely toothless and is run by and for the media. And in press is very very sort of small publications. And so Section 40, you're right, was going to essentially force um, newspapers to be properly regulated. Yeah. But our view was that that wasn't such a bad thing. I can say something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's been so polarised and it's, sort of, it's always scary to enter that debate sometimes because yeah. the positions are so entrenched on... I just put the pro on and I got accused of being an inveterate fence sitter by someone involved on one of the sides. So, um, so you're going to do it again. So I'm going to do it again. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's problematic and I agree with Rob that the, the drafting was clumsy and the relevant publishers thing worried me and I think it's, the whole use of a royal charter, I found that problematic from the beginning as well. I, I didn't actually respond to the government's consultation when they asked about full activation of Section 40, but if I had done, I think I would have agreed with the partial activation route, which would have allowed people that opted into this recognised regulator to enjoy the benefits mm. Mm. and to receive mm. the protection. So you offer your 
claimant the arbitration route, and if they don't use it, then you've got full cost protection, yeah. and therefore chilling effects. Mm. Yeah. You know, you, you've got a really good defence there. You've got a really good, uh, you know, way, way of avoiding sort of speech deterrence. Um, but but it, it just seems so unworkable for the full activation when you haven't got the sort of the cooperation or the backing of the press, which are incredibly powerful, big lobbying power. Um, and and I agree with you as well that there is a still a, a big outstanding issue that hasn't been addressed. And I, I really don't know how we solve mm-hmm. that. Um, just just moving to. Um to, to Facebook and the terms and conditions and everything that we have to do, you know, essentially we have to live by their rules if, if we want to bring actions. Um, I wonder is that if you think there's anything that we could do about that, because it, it scares me. I mean, if, if you look at Facebook's terms and conditions, defamation isn't actually even mentioned. You can make a defamation complaint they have a special way of doing it that you rarely hear when you do hear back from them an automatic response, but unless you have a court order, they are not interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and their law, the, the, the rules are very much, you know, American-based, so defamation is very weak, mm. you know, which is fine. America has America's laws, um, but, 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 but we, don't, we don't necessarily want to at all times, nor, nor would other countries. Um, and is, is there anything that we can do about this? Maybe, I mean, what about requiring s- sort of different terms of con- and conditions in order for them to be able to even operate here? And, and I guess a further, a further, I know, which some would say is quite draconian, but and a further concern is then what you have is you, you send your complaint, which says very generally harassment, nasty behavior, whatever, which is half of Facebook, from what I can gather. <laughs> you, you send your complaint, and it's never enough. Like, however much your client or you have been harassed, it doesn't meet their mm. target. And I think that is not dissimilar to Google. I think they just have, unless you manage to escalate it and actually get to someone, you essentially have an army of paralegals looking at it. Mm. And so it's not only that you have Facebook deciding what the rules are, I don't think they fully do implement what they say. And I think those who are making the decisions are people just out of law school with, with and they've been told, if in doubt, say no. Mm. And so should we or could we be saying to Facebook that in order to, I mean, some countries, I, I, I don't know. I mean, China, which has a little more pulling power than us, I guess has... Uh, certain requirements in relation to Google and in order to operate in our country you will do this and that and could we and should we be doing that in relation to Facebook or other social media platforms mm. uh, it's, it's a huge question obviously yeah. I mean um, I think Facebook has kind of uh, and the social media platforms have kind of uh, grown organically and there's been a very kind of hands-off approach to regulating them and yeah. I think they've been quite successful in, yeah. uh, in the way that they've resisted that regulation yeah. um, and to many people that absence or that, that sort of the, the, um, the, the minimal amount of regulation has been part of their success and, a, and an attractive feature of them and you know the, the, um, uh, the enhancement of free speech that's been provided and, and, and in many countries that's hugely important you know because the yeah. media is very is very controlled uh, and the ability to communicate 
um, through social media, sure. free of those traditional constraints is, yeah. is enormously important. Um, having said which, you know, we are getting to a point where Facebook is, is so big and so influential yes. that, that the absence of regulation itself starts to become problematic because you, you're starting to have uh, a platform um, for, uh, you know, undermining the kind of traditional national regulation and the, yeah. the sort of traditional balances which have been finely honed and, and Facebook starts to become a kind of a rival to national law and, and, and those kind of yeah, traditional balances and as you say it's um, you know it's what, what, what you have when you look at Facebook's community standards is, is a kind of um, it's a defamation law that you would sort of write on a postcard if you're yeah. trying to explain a sort of version of American defamation <laughs> yeah. law to someone who wasn't a lawyer. Because um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of folksy. And, and, and that's what, I mean, that's what's guiding their decisions. Yeah. But who knows what's actually guiding their decisions? There's no transparency, of yeah. course, because it's an invisible, you know, quasi-administrative process. And who's where, making the decisions? Who's making the decisions? What are their actual guidelines? You know? yeah. And I think there are real, um, real dangers here. Um, I, I don't know what the answers are. I don't, I don't know if, uh, you know if regulation is the way to go. I would certainly like to see more transparency. And, um, uh, but then there's a kind of trade-off in the, in the sense that uh, you know, how, um, how accessible Facebook is and how sort of streamlined and how simple these, these processes are um, yeah. is part of what makes them effective and 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 i think there's an advantage to that as well that that you know if you if there are, if there are sort of really horrific things posted on facebook mm -hmm. there are these administrative processes to get them taken down um which don't require lawyers to get involved um no no no, no, no. <laughs> no um, and uh you know i think that's 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 potentially advantageous but but uh, but obviously there are also a lot of uh, yeah a lot of issues but and and under, I mean, it seems that under Section 5, essentially, that they can say that, or they say they aren't publishers. Well, it's we, not they that say they're not publishers. The well, courts so have the said courts that they're have not said publishers. I mean, that's yeah. Temis and Google. You yeah. know, but they're platforms, they're hosts, they're not publishers. They only become publishers when they are given notice, and then within a reasonable time, yeah. and in that case, five weeks was too long, they mm. became publishers at some point. I mean, that they, they have this support of the common law behind them. I mean, yes, the one radical solution that they are publishers. They're not yeah. platforms, they're not web hosts. They are publishers. In the same way they are media companies. That's right. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, is that the way the, the way around that particular problem? Well, it, it I mean, would be, that make a, a bit a difference? It may help, be? though, because if they're, if they're in the firing line for their content, they are more likely to administer it according to your, the local laws. Now, that may not always be a good thing, depending mm. on what the locality is. But I don't know. I mean, it frustrates us, but we we get people all the time, and to be honest, not not just sort of really rich people who someone's been mean about them because and they're sort of angry. You know, it's really serious stuff, or it's revenge porn, or it's all mm. of these different types of things. Often, people with no money calling desperately because they've just googled lawyer, mm. and you want to be able to help them, but you you can honestly say to them, "Give me a million pounds, and I probably can't do anything." It's mm. not just a matter of money; it's a matter of how do you get there? And then, and then, and then, in relation to jurisdiction, you then have the issue of enforcement. Yeah. Which is, I mean, good luck forcing enforcing in the U.S. And, right. Yeah. And anywhere else, really. 
we have we're only just waking up to it <laughs> even though there have been many people many uh, many cassandras um talking about this since from the word go the, and this this notion that we a large part of our public discourse now takes place in private yeah. international spaces and we've we've slept walked slept walked sleep yeah. Yeah. Slept, slept walked yeah. into into this um because the technology moves so fast and um uh we're, we're we're sort of we're sort of stuck in this kind of weird um rut um i uh, was saying to um uh, oh, alice has had to leave um <laughs> i i only ever get asked to do any uh, broadcast media to defend the free speech rights of horrible people. <laughs> um, so uh, they, I was interviewed by the BBC about um, uh, Britain First, who were taken off Facebook. Now, in that case, I think they're actually inciting violence. I think um, uh, certainly they violate Facebook's terms and conditions, but I think um, uh, even though it's sort of ardent free speech um, activists sort of draws the line at that kind of in incitement, Nevertheless, I still felt it was the thing I said um, was that it was still problematic because an, a, a foreign company had effectively decided um, who can participate in British political discourse. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's, that's problematic and it's weird. And, and 15 years ago, no parliamentarian would have, would have signed up to... To, to that. Um, in the case of Britain first, the stop, a stop clock is right twice a day, um, but the clock is still um, broken and um, the same mechanisms can be used to take down um, controversial people who, who nevertheless want to speak. Um, so, yeah, what, what do you do about it other than <laughs> diversify our social media? Maybe there are technical solutions distributed solutions but this yeah this issue of the international example where maybe facebook is the only thing that's keeping the people the, the the dissidents of china going um pen launched a big campaign we were very angry with yahoo who gave over the private personal messages of uh, an activist called Shi tao um because china were then able to convict him of some um you know enemy of the state legislation um, based on, on Yahoo betraying him. And if, if Google and Facebook and Twitter want the 1.6 billion eyeballs, uh, oh, 3.2 billion eyeballs um, in, in China, then, um, then uh, they will, they will they'll agree to those terms and yeah. conditions. And mm -hmm. the, the, um, the, the, the brave new world <laughs> uh, recedes. Great. Well, um, we are running very short of time. If anyone has any burning questions for the panel, then you know, speak now. I guess I do have a question. It's more on the substantive law uh, and how that affects working. We've heard a lot of problems, the ongoing problems of the false fears that uh, defendants will face. But it struck me that almost all of the examples of cases let's say since the year 2000 approximately, almost all the examples of cases that you mentioned today were ones where it struck me that the defendant, where they should have won, did win. And I wondered if, apart from the costs, both legal costs and psychological toll, apart from the costs, is the substantive law working as it should? 
<laughs> I, I can answer, but I please answer. Please well, answer. If anyone else wants to, well, I, I, I don't, I don't know, but I think the the point is that Article Eight and Article Ten are competing interests, and and in in perhaps this area more than any other area of talk, the role defences is is so important in uh, in in limiting the ambit of the talk itself, um, and I think that the, the law of defamation is fairly balanced in that respect. And when Joseph and Spiller says that, you know, that, that Article 8, it, it involves, you know, reputation as well as family life, we must take that on board. I think since then, 2010, that the English courts have. Um, but, uh, uh, but yet, the, um, the defences, as you say, when you expect the defendant to, to win on a defence, they, they generally do. Those have not panned out to me terribly surprisingly in the case law. So I suppose that, that's the view I have. It has re reached a, a, an appropriate balance, but but I do think the um, enveloping of technology is, is something which the tort is struggling to keep up with, only to be expected. But um, this sort of issue that we talked about just now, the, the, the Section 5, and, and, and to what extent the operator of a website has a defence, I mean, I think all of that is, is very much catching up still, and uh, that's where I think real, real attention has to, be, has to be employed. And do you think the law has been, despite or because of what, what you said, in, in your opening remarks, do you think the law has been improved by the 2013 Act? Well, yes, because of the left-hand column. Yeah, yeah, and, and the, and the right-hand column was just unnecessary. Well, I'm yet to be convinced that it made a tangible difference to the outcome of the case law. I think that's what I. That's my point. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one thing I'd say um, is, is that yeah, I, I think probably agree on, on, on that. And yeah, uh, uh, one thing I, I actually scribbled it down when you mentioned seeing. Um, yeah, Simon Singh prevailed, as he should have done. Um, but, you know, the case, I'm just looking at the reference number, it's 2010 CA, Court of Appeal. Mm. Um, and I went to those, those hearings and, and um, met with Simon on many occasions about it. Um, it. You know, it went to the Court of Appeal. That's really expensive and time-consuming. Um, and so, although... Um, I think what, one, what we think is, is a virtue of the Act is that um, although, you know, although the, the tweaks are very small um, and it might not change the outcome of the cases, if you can get to the outcome of a case um, quicker, um, then, then that's a virtue. Uh, uh, the, that does beg the question, <laughs> though, you know, can you get to the, the outcome of the case quicker or, 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 or not? Um, and still restrictions on so. Well, that's a good so, question. Yeah. So we don't have any data on um, def I mean, defamation cases can be brought out in the, in the other court in the registries. I think in um, other parts of the country.
that can be done with the art matching that they're using in their art stuff. But we, we have a Rolls Royce service. We, we, our courts, our library courts, like, apart from America, I say, are the envy of the world. We do a fantastic job. If you have got a load of money and you want a case really well argued, you've all the details sorted out. This is the best place to come and have it done. But it costs a huge amount of money. And if you don't want that, you just want a quick, short answer, there's no way of getting it. Mm. That's, that's mm. the problem. So, um, one thing we're over chatting sometimes, we'll hear something generally working in the right way, but the costs mm. just cost no, crazy. No proportionate justice. Mm. Do, 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 you, do you find that in, in the work you're doing in, in the courts in relation to how they work, that, 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 I mean, to us it seems as practitioners from the outside that stuff, that, that ideas such as having, uh, you know, earlier hearings on, on issues such as serious harm do help to, you know, it's not a change of the law, it's just a change of the mm. process, but that has helped to get rid of claims that wouldn't really have any hope uh, but maybe not worthy of a strike out and it's also that brings costs down that brings time down that brings public exposure down and so that I, I don't know to what end you've been involved in any of that but but that seems like something that courts can and have done I agree that that the need much better to have a small claims court and or a system of arbitration arbitration also being attractive in the sense that it's private at least until judgments but I, I was wondering yeah I mean you... I think these are the, some of the issues that are coming up through the, the committee that Richard and I sit on and I yeah. think I mean I'm, I'm learning through that really because yeah. I'm not really close to the litigation yeah. in, in that kind of way and, and don't have that, that experience and I certainly would support yeah the creation of a, of a, a faster track of, of, of just to, I mean when you read some of these judgments and I think I disagree on you know it's, it's, it's sort of on yeah yeah Broadly, yeah, I, I agree that sort of the substantive law sort of is is, is well founded. But yes, I think if I did a whole overview of all the cases, I wouldn't necessarily agree on all of them. But um, but you look at the minutiae of some of those cases, and you're talking about you know like a tweet, and then the the, 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 the disproportionate costs and time that are then go into in terms like of Sally Burke or yeah, yeah or the Monroe case yeah. or you know just and there surely has to be a sense a more sensible and simpler way of resolving that that's, that's far more in the interest of the claimant and the defendant mm. and gets the you know a similar result yeah. and re you know proper redress for the for the wrong for the wrong party but um this also um <clears throat> goes to some of the points that you were saying about about um just pu public understanding and hoping that the public get a little bit more um, more savvy um, uh, when you're making the distinction between slander and um, and defamation um, uh, and you know in in law a tweet is a publication um, but uh, most people do Twitter as if they are just talking into the air and it's 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 amazing you know and then it, it's, it still astounds me actually that the public figures can get caught out for something that they tweeted a few years ago. It just happens every every week. It's like, you must have... have, have yeah, two no. years ago we did um, so And I, I, you know, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't let my, my daughter just go, who's only six, but start post writing out personal messages and pinning them to a lamppost or cranking out handbills. And, <laughs> and when the time comes, I, you know, I will, I will teach her 
um, not to tweet out anything because it is a publication and, and maybe actually the virtue of the Bacone case and the Monroe case against Katie Hopkins is that people begin to realise <clears throat> that in law they are, it is permanent and it's, it, and it's there. Um, uh, to, to, to very quickly, um, on, on this notion of, um, of sort of low-cost tribunals and stuff like that, um, to, sorry, to geek out on Section 5 very yeah. briefly, um, uh, uh, the Library Reform Campaign and I know, I know a legal firm did uh, suggest in the consultation around Section 5, the, the regulations, yes. um, that there would be a, some kind of court-based backstop to the Section 5 procedure so that anyone um, of the three, the three, the claimant, the, the, the operator and the defendant um, could get a, a, a sort of view on whether there was, there was even a case to answer. Um, and my idea was that was that the courts should should run should run some kind of online form, <laughs> um, and maybe mandate that all Section Five notices go through that form, and then we get some good statistics about the use of Section Five. Because um, my worry about it is is that is that the reputation managers um, uh, at some uh, at some firms and some companies are um, are using it to kind of to. Um, to launder a client's reputation in a way that's not in the public interest. And so on that, one thing you can do in the commercial courts is you can um, apply to the court for uh, you know, normally a master to give a pre mm, preliminary, preliminary hearing. Yeah. Or but to, to, to give a preliminary view, a non-binding preliminary mm. view on the merits mm. of the claim, which again is another way of, um, you know, explaining to those with not much of a case that they really don't have much of a case. Indeed. And again, stopping the whole thing going the whole way. Um, Stephen Sedley, who I mentioned, um, his um, contribution to our uh, report uh, on the alternative, the alternative library project yeah. on, on ADR um, was, yeah, this idea of early neutral resolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, 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 the mix. Um, and very briefly, is it working? <laughs> Um, uh, gosh, um, I think, uh, I think from, at least in the sort of particular context of, of what I've looked at, yeah. I, I think, um, whether or not it, it's working is almost beside the point. It, exactly. It's being left behind, yeah. you know, it's, um, and, and really this is, this is around the, the cost issues and the access to justice issues that yeah. the, the, the law is in danger of becoming irrelevant. Um, and, to the the regulation issues, and the jurisdiction the issues, jurisdiction the, 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 the law is in danger of becoming irrelevant to these very important, uh, you know, questions of public interest. Uh, that's certainly our experience. But yeah. um, any further questions? Um, I just wanted to announce that downstairs there's going to be some wine, some light snacks in the Gordon Cafe. So if you want to hang around and uh, talk more about uh, the issues raised today, we'll yeah. Hopefully, a few of us can stay stick around. But next, uh, but of course, we, we go. Please do. But uh, can I ask us, the audience, to thank our moderators and our speaker, our moderator and our speakers? <laughs>